Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. My name is Matt Halstead, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again this week as we continue our series through the Book of Romans. It's coming down to the wire. We are nearing the end. There is light at the end of the tunnel in our series on the Book of Romans, and I'm kind of sad about it because I really, really enjoy Romans, and I hope that you have too. I hope that it's been an encouragement to you. I hope it's given you a lot of things to think about. I hope that you've seen new new uh, scenes on the pages of Romans. Um, yeah, but it's sad because we're finishing up. Uh, today we're in Romans 15 and there's only 16 chapters. So um, we'll do the first half of Romans 15 today and then we'll finish up um, probably, I think we have about two more episodes left in this series. So we'll wrap it up um, in the weeks ahead. But um, a couple, couple things. First, I want to say is that today is a special day in uh, the the life of the Bible unmuted because it's episode fifty and I don't know for some reason that that feels like a success I, you know it's funny because like, there was a part of me I suppose where I thought okay I'm probably gonna do like ten episodes and then this thing's gonna peter out but um, here we are fifty episodes so it's pretty cool um, yeah I don't know I mean I was pretty committed to it when I first started this I'm like okay I'm in this for the long haul we're gonna have fun we're gonna enjoy doing this so we're coming up on about I guess one year's time. It seems like I don't I don't remember the exact date, but I think we started in February of 2023 and um this will be out on January 23rd. So of, of 2024. So yeah, we're we're coming up on that 12 month mark of one year anniversary, 50 episodes. So um yeah, anyway, it's pretty cool. Uh thanks thanks to everybody who's been listening. Um super uh super thankful uh, for for each and every one of you and it's fun to get emails and messages from folks who, um, you know, tell me that they, they really like this content. And I tell you that that's really encouraging to me because, um, you know, I, I, I've just dedicated my life to teach the Bible and I've been doing this for a long time. And, um, I, I mean, I was in full-time ministry for about 13 ish years or thereabouts. And, you know, I'm teaching, um, at the undergrad level. So it's still ministry. I still see all of this as ministry and teaching scripture. And, um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. It just, it just, um, it's just so much fun. I just can't tell you how much fun it is. And I know many of you teach the Bible too, and you feel the same way. And, um, there's just, it's just a privilege to, to, to lead folks in scripture and, and to lead discussions and stuff. And, and, um, so yeah, anyway, it, it's, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you all for, for being listeners and uh, supporting the podcast. It, it just it brings me a lot of encouragement, um, because of, uh, of, of just when I, when I hear folks who, who've enjoyed the content. So thanks so much. And, um, yeah, so this is episode 50, uh, kind of a, a birthday, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It's not really a birthday. It, the podcast is one years old, so that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, anyway, so, um, by God's grace, we'll keep going and, um, um, looking forward to the next round of 50 episodes and speaking of future episodes, guys, I'm, I'm so excited about this. Like we have a great lineup of guests coming up starting next week. Okay. So I've spoken about this before. I've given you some, um, uh, sneak peeks as to who's coming on the show. Um, we're going to have Robert Alter, the one and the only Robert Alter, um, he's going to be on the show and, uh, we're, we're um, going to chat this week and I'm looking forward to recording and, and, uh, that will come out, 
a week from uh, this episode coming out. So it'd be like episode 51. So um, what a great, great way to um, kick things off for the next round of 50 episodes. Um, so many of you know, Robert Alter, uh, not too long ago, finished a translation of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, we actually use his translation um, at, at, my, at my school for our Hebrew Bible courses and stuff. So um, yeah, so just really thankful to get him on the show. We're going to have uh, a lot of fun chatting about um, uh, his scholarship and just getting his take on the Hebrew Bible. I've got a, a range of questions and um, yeah, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. I'm just super stoked about it. Like I, I, you know, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I, am such a nerd and I've always been too school for cool. You know what I mean? And so I, um, I, I totally nerd out when it comes to, <laughs> to these, to, to having guests on the show because yeah, I, I read their books and then I get them on the show and it's, it's a lot of fun. So anyway, okay. Well, yeah. So Robert Alter's coming up and, uh, followed by, um, a Barrel Dove Learner, whose fantastic book, I finished it a couple weeks ago, um, it is, it's just a great book on uh, kind, of, kind of the interdisciplinary book on philosophy, Western philosophy, and some philosophical uh, concepts brought to bear upon the Hebrew Bible. And it's just super, super cool to have Barrel on the show. I can't wait to ask him a ton of questions. Like, um, I'm, I'm thinking, depending on how long that conversation goes, that might be a couple of episodes in and of itself because I have a ton of questions and um, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be be a lot of fun. So if you haven't checked out any of his work, I highly recommend his latest book. I don't have it sitting here in front of me, so I can't remember the title at, 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 at the, at, it's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, just go Google it, Amazon it, Barrel of Learner, and um, you'll be blessed. You'll, you'll, you'll definitely, his book definitely gives you something to think about. Like, like to be honest, I, you know, even, I, I don't track with him on everything, and so I look forward to, um, you know, diving into some of those discussions more. So maybe I can learn more about um, this stuff. But um, but e- I actually emailed him. I told him, I was like, hey, you know, even if somebody doesn't track with what you say, you know, you're, some of your exegetical conclusions, like you still have a book that, man, it's just, it's really good. Like it, it you're giving people so much to think about. And, and as someone like myself, you know, and, 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 and you guys know this too about yourself, like when you are too school for cool, like you, you just love good content. And even if you're not going to track with it completely, even if you don't completely agree with what maybe a scholar has done or said or whatever, like when it's good content, like it doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. It's just, it's just so stimulating to interact with and you learn something even though you may not agree with it per se. And I mean, like even Robert Alter, like he makes some translation choices that I, you know, would quibble about, but all of his translation choices are just super interesting, you know? And, and so I love having guests on the show who, um, can, who, who just have this ability to push us to think deeper and more carefully and critically about the text. And that's my, that's my passion. That's my goal anyway, for this podcast is to, you know, really develop the rhythm of having content on here, whether it's, you know, from me or from guests or whatever, um, just anything that's done on the podcast, like I want it to be done well. And I want, I want us to really think critically about things that maybe we haven't thought about before. And it doesn't mean we all have to agree with one another. Like if you guys know me by now, you know that agreement is not a requirement for friendship, right? Um, like I, I love having people on the show that I don't agree with, you know, necessarily. And so, um, and so anyway, um, yeah, I just, I just, that's my passion for this 
podcast and uh, for my life. And, and I know it's your passion too. Like you don't want, um, just, you know, surface level stuff. Like you want to, you want to get to the heart of the issue. You want to look at things from on a, on a deep level. And, um, that's how we should all be right. That's how we should, what, what we should pursue. So anyway, all to say, like, yeah, this is going to be so many cool conversations with, uh, about the Hebrew Bible and philosophy. I mean, I'm a, I have a philosophy background too. And my, my PhD even was interdisciplinary. Like I used, um, the philosophy of Hans Gorgodimer and brought his philosophical reflections to bear upon, uh, the new Testament. And so, um, yeah, I just, I have a, have a, a passion for anybody who does that, you know, I, in, in their work. So, um, Beryl's work is going to be fantastic. We also, as I said before, have a great lineup of New Testament scholars too. So we're, we really got the treat. We got some great Hebrew Bible stuff coming up and some great New Testament stuff coming up. I've got Steve Walton uh, coming on on the podcast. Uh, I'm not sure when this one will drop per se, but um, Steve Steve's an excellent scholar, just fantastic. And I've known him for several years and um, um, he's currently working on the Acts commentary for the Word Biblical Commentary series, which if you know anything about that commentary series, you know it's the real deal. Like, highly, highly recommend this commentary series, Word Biblical Commentary. Um, so he's going to do the Acts um, commentary, and I think I think it's a two-volume set. So when it's out, it'll be two volumes. So I'm le- really looking forward to talking with him about that. I'll even bring in some questions about the study of Paul. Like, what can we learn about Paul, the historical Paul, um, from, from uh, the book of Acts? So I think that'll be a lot of fun to chat about. Um, of course, we'll talk about some ecclesiology stuff and maybe uh, pick his brain about, you know, what the early church, you know, what was the early church's practice and thought about, like, say, church planting and what was their approach to just church structure. I don't know. We'll get into all that kind of stuff. That'll be a lot of fun. And then last but not least, we're going to have David De Silva on the on the program. I, I actually don't have a date yet when we're recording, but um, anyway, yeah, he's, he's going to be on the show. We're going to talk about all things Revelation. You know, he's written a lot on Revelation. Um, he's done work on the Apocrypha. That, that'll be so much fun too. We'll we'll have to pick his brain on that. We might have to do like like a two-hour series or something and split that one up too. Um, so many things to talk about. Like I could, we could do like 50 episodes on just, you know, one topic, I think. But anyway, um, yeah, so got a great lineup. Super excited about that and um, have a lot of fun. So today... We are in uh, Romans, I almost said Revelation, jumping ahead, right? Um, We're in Romans chapter 15, and we're going to look, just we're going to split in half. We're going to just look at the first 13 verses today. As I was writing up this this study today, um, I I, I just thought it would be best to split it up because there's just a lot of material we'd have to rush through, and I don't really want to rush through it. I mean, the the goal has always been through this Roman series is to keep a 30,000-foot view, I never really wanted to get into the weeds too much, not because it's not important to do, it is, but because I think when it comes to Romans, and I'll mention more about this in the, in the episode here, but when it comes to Romans, like one mistake we often make is is getting too much into the details that we forget the story that Paul is writing, the, the, the canvas that Paul is painting on. And, and I didn't want to do that because I think with Romans, like, you know, we get so caught up in, you know, disputes about... Dikaiosune. And and I mean, we should talk, talk about Dikaiosune, righteousness. Um, we should talk about all those things, but, and, and we should, you know, go a million miles deep on those topics. But f- for this episode, I just, I mean, for this series, I wanted to, 
I wanted to tell a story. You know, what is Paul doing? What's the large picture about Jew-Gentile relations and, you know, the faithfulness of the Messiah and how that brings about the covenant renewal, all those sorts of things. So I wanted to, I wanted to stay up there. Um, and I think in this episode, actually, you're going to see why. You're going to see why that, that storied approach to Romans was important. Because it, it, in many ways, it, it kind of bottlenecks here in Romans 14 and 15. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be a fun episode today because we're going to talk about all that, but we're also going to get into eschatology a little bit um, because I think eschatology is a feature here in this text. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how all that works in together. All right, well, without further ado, let's dive into Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 7. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has has welcomed you for the glory of God. Okay, so that's verses 1 through 7, and um, it's reading from, as always, the New Revised Standard Version. Um, Okay, so yeah, where do we begin? Well, first, there are several things um, we need to attend to in this passage. So first off, you'll notice that this part goes very much with what we looked at last week in Romans 14. So for example, verse 7 that we just read here, where it says, welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, that that verse 7 bookends sort of the entire uh, conversation that began in Romans 14. So again, Romans 14, verse 1 says, welcome those who are weak in faith. And now in Romans 15, verse 7, we see, welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that's what I mean, that this sort of bookends itself, okay? So you have a nice little passage, um, start and finish here. Um, So, and that was another reason why I said last week that Romans 14 and Romans 15 actually go together. They're two chapters are part of the same section of thought. And in fact, by the time you get to Romans 15 verse 7, where it talks about Christ welcoming people, it becomes clear that this is the natural conclusion that Paul must reach. After all, Paul spent a large part of Romans 14 talking about how God has welcomed people into the church through the work of Christ. That is to say, through his death and his resurrection. And we talked about how Paul conceived of the work of God through the lens of his messianic beliefs and how Paul's ethical exhortations were Christologically derived. We talked about that last week, okay? We'll, we'll see more of that. Um, we'll see more of that here uh, this week. Okay, so the second thing to notice is that there's a quotation from the Old Testament here in verse 3. So let me reread verses 2 and 3 once again. I'll actually, let me, actually, I'll just read verses 1 through 3. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Okay, so the reason, says Paul, that the strong ought to be patient 
with the weak is because they should not be preoccupied with pleasing themselves. Why not? Well, because Christ did not please himself. And to back up that claim, Paul quotes from Psalm 68 verse 10 from the Septuagint. And when he says, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So this quotation draws a lot from scholars, draws lots of questions and attention from scholars. So for example, why would Paul quote this verse instead of appealing directly to say the death and resurrection of Jesus? In context, the psalmist is begging God to save him, and it's a lament uh, that he makes uh, because of the persecution he's receiving at the hands of apparently close friends. Let me read Psalm 68, verses 1 through 10, from the Septuagint, the Lexham English Septuagint translation. Let me read from that so that we can kind of set the set the context of the psalm itself. Now, note um, that in the Hebrew Bible, this is actually Psalm 69. In the Septuagint Greek version, um, this is Psalm 68. So there's a, a difference in um, versification here. Anyway, I'll be reading from the Lexham English Septuagint, verses 1 through 10. It says, For the end, on behalf of those who are being changed by David, save me, O God, because waters entered unto my soul. I was planted in the mud of the deep, and there was no substance. I came into the depth of the sea, and the storm drowned me. I grew weary of crying aloud. My throat was sore. My eyes were forsaken by coming near to my God. Those who hate me for nothing increased more than the hairs of my head. My enemies, those who persecute me unjustly, were strengthened. What things I did not seize, then I repaid. O God, you knew my folly and my trespasses. They are not hidden from you. May those who wait upon you not be put to shame because of me, O Lord, Lord of armies. May those who seek you not be be shamed because of me, O God of Israel, because on account of you I bore reproach. Shame covered my face. I became a stranger to my brothers and a foreigner to the children of my mother because the zeal of your house devours me. And the reproach of those who revile you fell upon me. Okay, so clearly the psalmist is going through a very difficult time. On the account of God himself, apparently the psalmist says that he bore reproach. And as a result, he became a stranger to his brothers and a foreigner to the children of his mother. So there's a feeling of alienation from those who are close to him. The reproach that he is bearing is one that he's not bearing in his own strength, though, because... After all, he's taking that complaint to God. He's taking his struggle, his anguish, his feelings of despair, all of it is being taken to his God. Okay, so why does Paul use this psalm as part of the speech of Jesus? Right? And 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 what does what does that have anything to do with the issue that Paul is addressing? I think it's clear that Paul thinks he can use this psalm as, say, lyrics of sorts for Jesus because because of what he already believes about Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished in his crucifixion. In other words, Paul's Christological horizon of understanding serves as a sort of path into the psalm. It helps him to discover fresh meaning in light of what he already believes about Jesus. Now, second, um, it's important to note, I think, that Paul's Christological horizon is at least in part something bequeathed to him from the Jesus tradition, and it's not just from his own personal revelations of Christ. So, okay, for example, this psalm, the one that we've just read, that passage, the whole chapter, 
It is deeply enmeshed in the larger Jesus tradition and testimonies that we find in other writers of the New Testament. Notice, for example, how this psalm is quoted or alluded to by other early Christians. Take John chapter 2, verse 17, for instance, and, and how it's used in that passage to describe the actions of Jesus. You might remember this passage. It is there when the disciples saw Jesus cleansing the temple. And the text says that they remembered that in the scriptures it was written, quote, zeal for your house will consume me, which is a quotation from Psalm 68, verse 10 as well. Now notice too that there's probably an allusion to Psalm 68, verse 22. That's the verse that says, and they gave gall for my food and they gave me vinegar for my drink. There's probably an allusion to that in the crucifixion narratives where Jesus was offered wine mixed with gall. So for example, look at Matthew 27. Verse 34, early Christians apparently noticed how there were certain events associated with Jesus' life and his death that bore remarkable resemblance with the text of Psalm 68, or the Hebrew Bible 69. And fast forward to Paul's own situation of writing to the Romans, he can easily find in this psalm a saying that is quite consistent with what he already believes about Jesus. The point with using this psalm, I think, is this. Sometimes following God requires sacrifice. Okay, I think that's the point of Paul's use of the psalm, I should say. Christ's own sacrifice on the cross was costly to him personally, and it is the epitome of this point, the point that sometimes following God requires sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for the sake of others. In Jesus's case, He did it in the midst of enemies who were mocking him, who were alienating him, who were murdering him. And obviously, it goes without saying that that would have been tough to go through. And the application for the Roman church seems apparent at this point. I mean, it was a church mixed with all sorts of opinions, various beliefs about dietary restrictions and other legal questions pertaining to Torah. What Paul wants to say to them is, hey, look, you have to bear with one another, you know, especially for those who are strong in the faith. Those of you who believe that you have a certain level of liberty when it comes to these issues, you have a responsibility to bear with those brothers and sisters whose consciences don't permit such leeway. And in terms of modern day application, I mean, I think there are perhaps a million different avenues we could explore here. But suffice it to say, I think Paul would envision a church that is self-sacrificial for one another. That while there may be disagreements, there should always be unity. If Jesus can endure the insults of his enemies, then surely the church can endure patiently with their brothers and sisters over these sorts of matters. Next, I want to talk about eschatology. Why so? Well, because I think that's where Paul takes us in verse 4. Let me read that verse once again. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so where do I get eschatology here? Well, I think that we can catch a glimpse of Paul's understanding of eschatology as it relates to his Christology. Okay, let me unpack this a bit. It might take a minute, but um, let's unpack it. We're going to visit 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to help us to see what's going on. So let me just back up here. So for Paul, as well as other Christians, um, 
The coming of Jesus marked a significant moment in human history. Jesus's advent brought about a decisive change in the history of God's dealing with humanity. Paul says this most markedly, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says that it is on the Christ people that, quote, the ends of the ages have come. For those of us who grew up in evangelicalism, this might seem rather strikingly odd. We, after all, are accustomed to thinking about the end as that moment on the calendar near the final events of human history. It's all about the future, in other words. But for the early Christians, that's not really how it worked out. They talk about the end um, with much different, um, very different connotations, I think. It had more to do with the person and the work of Jesus than, say, the final events. Now, of course, Many early Christians no doubt thought that they were living somewhere near the final events of history, and, you know, that's okay, because every Christian has the right, and I would actually say the responsibility, to anticipate the Lord's consummation of history. But of course, we know that through the passing of time, Jesus has delayed his parousia, he has delayed his showing up, and I think a careful reading of all the relevant texts of the New Testament testify to the fact that there would be an undesignated amount of time between the two advents of Jesus, between the first and the second coming of Christ. Okay, so what that means is that the end is itself a concept that encapsulates the person of Jesus. Like I say in my new book, The End of the World as You Know It, the concept of the end is not so much a reference to the final events, though it sometimes is, the concept of the end is not a time per se, but it's actually about a person. Jesus, after all, is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the, you guessed it, the end. So the, so the, 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 the entire logic kind of works like this. If Jesus is the end, then his people, regardless of when they might be living, whether that be in the first century or the 21st, Jesus's people are participants in the end. Okay, how does that make sense? Well, we, we have already seen um, in Romans chapter 6 that we are participants in the body of Christ. We are in union with him by virtue of our baptism. Go back and read Romans chapter 6. Um, and we are therefore his body, you know, doing his work on this earth. And so we too participate in the work of the eschaton. Okay, it, it is truly upon the Christ people whom the ends, ends of the ages have come. The question is, well, okay, how are we being faithful to carry out the work that he's giving us to do? Are we faithful to actually be his hands and feet? Good question, but let's get back to the hermeneutics of it all. For Paul, because we are the people on whom the ends of the ages have come, we can look back to the, uh, at, the, at the revelation of the Old Testament texts and all the stories and, and read them as having a particular Christological relevance. This is what happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, go back and and um, and 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 read that chapter. It, it's fascinating how Paul read the 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 Hebrew story of the Exodus. As as a faithful Jew who believes Jesus is the Messiah, Paul reads it in light of the Jewish Messiah, in light of Jesus. And so, so, so check out that that chapter. I think it's I think it's really helpful and important. Um, and, and I think the same idea is present in Romans uh, 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the scriptures are for Paul, sources of instruction and encouragement and hope. 
They take on relevance for the Jesus people precisely because for Paul, he sees Jesus as fulfilling all those stories. And since we, Jew and Gentiles, are all united to Jesus, we participate in those stories as well. That's why I think Paul um, will say later um, what he does in Romans 15, verse 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, this this abounding in hope, in, in joy and peace, that happens through pistis, through the act of faith, through being loyal to Jesus as the Messiah. So it's Christological, okay? And I say this a lot, not to bore you with the concept of Christology, but simply because it's a concept that is weaved in and through the entirety of Paul's thought. Hey friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun, biblical, theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. Actually, what I think I'm going to do is we're going to read through 1 Corinthians 10 in just a moment. We're going to dive into that because I really want you to see how 1 Corinthians 10 factors into this larger discussion about the way Paul um, thought about eschatology uh, with respect to his Christology, which helped him to go back to read these Old Testament texts in in ways um, uh, in the ways that he did. Okay, so I think by the end it'll all make sense. But kind of put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Um, for now, let's just jump into this final little passage that we're going to uh, explore, verses eight through thirteen. Let me read eight through thirteen, and we'll continue our discussion. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I could seriously spend a ton of time on just verses 8 through 9, specifically on the grammar and some of the translation issues that come up. But like I've said before, my goal in this podcast series is to keep us around the 30,000 foot ceiling level so that we can get a, a wide-angled view of the situation, okay? So we're not going to jump into all those details. Um, that, that, that's a great thing to do, but sort of my goal here is to do something slightly different. So anyway, as I said before, you know, one mistake that people make with Romans is that they get so caught up in the weeds 
that they missed the bigger story being told. Okay. And, um, as I said about justification, like, you know, we get into the weeds of that and, you know, um, I'm not against all that. I'm not against getting into the weeds of justification or any of those uh, particular topics that come up in Romans. You got to get into the weeds. I get that. Um, (laughs) if there's anything the past 500 years have taught us, it's that we've gotten into the weeds. And I'm obviously thinking here of the endless debates about justification in our post-Reformation world. Those are good. I like those debates. But for this series, again, we need to keep things in that wide-angle format. Um, And you'll see why, because there's a story that Paul is telling through Romans, okay? You cannot see the story in the weeds. You got to go about 30,000 feet up, and you'll see the story. And in a moment, I'm going to take you through that story, and you'll see why that story is important, okay? Um, But let me just start with this question. Like, how does... How does this help us understand the section, this Romans 15 verses 8 through 13 section? You know, what does the story have to do with any of this? Well, here's how I understand the situation. When Paul says in verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. When Paul says all of that, I think he's referring to the way in which Christ has embodied the vocation of Israel to bring about the salvation to the world. Okay, that's the story that Paul thinks Jesus is embodying. Jesus has confirmed the promises made to the patriarchs. Again, we you know, we know these as the covenants. And by means of those covenants, Jesus has brought Gentiles into the community of God's family. You'll recall like um, early on in the podcast in this series, I talked about the Genesis 11-12 narrative. I need to rehash that once again here. I've mentioned this before. You know, when it comes to that Genesis 11, 12 narrative, the story to approach the scripture, I'm hugely indebted to N.T. Wright for bringing um, this to our attention here. Uh, I've, I've talked about that a lot. And and um, so, yeah, I just want to give credit to whom credit is due. That his storied approach has really just helped me think through these top, through, through this this subject, specifically this the particular story I'm about to tell here, okay? Um, N.T. Wright's just the boss when it comes to that. Um, okay, so let's go back. When you when you get to Genesis, let's go back to Genesis. You remember that Genesis 12 is where God first calls Abram to be the person through whom the nations would be blessed. Now, okay, in the story of Genesis as a whole, this chapter, chapter 12, Genesis 12, it has a special narrative function because you can actually divide Genesis into two complete different sections. Genesis 1 through 11, and Genesis 12 through 50. Scholars often refer to Genesis 1 through 11 as universal history. In Genesis 12 through 50, they often refer to that as patriarchal history. So this leaves a point of difference, a a, a pivot point, if you will, at Genesis 11 and 12, okay? It's because it's there where this switch in thought happens, this change in the gears, so to speak, it's all there that takes place, Genesis 11 and 12, okay? And, and I think that what happens there, this story that happens in Genesis 11 and 12 is a story that is carried on into the New Testament, okay? So if you, read Genesis, if you read Genesis 1 through 11 very carefully, you'll notice that it's the story of humanity. It's the story of everyone. God creates a good world. He creates humans to be its caretakers, Humans take no care of their calling, and they plunge the world into chaos. Okay, you know the story. I know the story. The first human pair are only the beginning, though. I mean, their descendants get worse and worse. Then you got, you know, you got the serpent, and, you know, it's not just about human rebellion, but you have 
the spiritual creature, he, he gets involved. There's a spiritual rebellion in Genesis chapter 6 that totally makes the matters worse. And then between chapter 6 and 11, it's like total anarchy chaos, right? But then something remarkable happens in Genesis 12. That's where God calls a family to be a blessing to the nations of the world. Why? Well, because, you know, the nations were put under a curse, the Tower of Babel, and they needed healing. And so that's where the shift occurs. There's a shift in focus, you know, that occurs here in Genesis 12. Genesis 1 through 11 is all about humanity. Then, then chapter 12 through 50, that really begins to focus on the Jewish family, the family of Abraham. Okay, because Abraham, um, you know, that's a pretty important guy, right? Um, and as it turns out, when you read through Genesis 12 through 50, and through the Hebrew Bible as a whole, you discover that the family through which the world was to be healed, they actually need healing as well. Sadly, Israel shows itself to be in sin too, just like the world. And so that creates a dilemma, a fun issue, if you will. You know, it, it, it's an issue for God to kind of work out, right? Because Israel cannot rescue the world, and, and that's a problem. Why? Because God promised Abraham that he would use his family to rescue this world. He cannot scrap that plan unless, of course, you know, God shows himself to be unfaithful to the promise. But God cannot be unfaithful to the promise. It's against his nature. So God must use Israel to do the job. And so what God needs to do is find a faithful Israelite. And all throughout the Hebrew Bible, there are clues that this is what God is going to do. In Isaiah, take Isaiah, for example. You have the servant figure. He's clearly identified as Israel. The servant is Israel. And this makes sense because Israel is God's entity that he will use to be of service and ministry to the world. And yet, also in Isaiah, Isaiah, we get glimpses of how this servant figure is someone who will actually rescue Israel. Okay? And long story short, there's a man who shows up years later on the scene. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And according to Matthew's gospel, he begins doing things that appear to reenact the story of Israel. You've noticed this, right? We've talked about it before. Jesus, as a baby, he flees to Egypt with the Holy Family, and then they return home. Pretty much like an exodus. Matthew calls it an exodus in a sense. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. He's tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He stands on a mountain and declares the commandments of God. Jesus identifies himself as a servant, a foot washer of everyone who would come to him. Jesus ministers to not just Jews, but also Gentiles. He, like Israel, is exiled outside of Jerusalem to die. But as Ezekiel promised, Israel is resurrected. The dead bones live again in Jesus, the story of Easter. And it's in the story of Jesus that we see the story of Israel. Why? Because God promised to use Israel to rescue the, the world. He, he promised to use Israel to resurrect the world and to lead it out of its bondage and back home. And in this way, Jesus is the rescuer of the nations by being the one who fulfills the covenants made to the patriarchs. In other words, by fulfilling the covenants, Jesus has rescued Israel and fulfilled Israel's vocation to rescue the Gentiles. He's done it all. He's done it all at once. Now, in light of that story, let's go back, reread Romans 15 verses 8 through 9. Again, he says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I mean, that sounds like the Genesis eleven twelve 12 narrative, does it not? 
The rescue of the world cannot happen apart from the Old Testament covenant promises. That's so important to remember. I'm going to say something. This is super important, okay? Christianity is not a thing apart from the Jewish story. As Jesus says in the Gospels, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation comes through the Jewish story. And that is good news for everyone, Jew and Gentile. Salvation can come to the Jews themselves, rescuing them from the exile of sin. And it can rescue the Gentiles in that way, too through the Jewish people. In this way, God has fulfilled his mission to restore the world through the family of Abraham. And the Gentiles praise him for it. This is why Paul will quote a litany of Old Testament passages in Romans 15 verses 9 through 12. Those passages speak about Gentiles praising the Lord. These passages occur in the context of Paul's Christological understanding of salvation history. Now, look, there's a lot more to be said about this litany, about the passages cited, but again, I think it's best to let ourselves hover over the big story at 30,000 feet and just admire what Paul is doing here. I think the big story is worth contemplation. It's worth our awe. I think it's a beautiful thing that Paul is doing. And it's within that context, you know, the story that I've just related, I think it's in that context that Paul says what he says in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here's the context. Or, yeah, that's the context. Here's the application to the situation at Rome. If it is through Christ that the world is reconciled as one family, then shouldn't that one family get along over matters such as questions related to dietary habits? I mean... Shouldn't the church be a preview of the new Jerusalem? Paul cannot imagine it otherwise. And that's why he says for the church to welcome one another. For Christ has welcomed us, all of us, Jew and Gentile. One question a person might have is, okay, but how do we know Paul is thinking along the lines of this story? I mean, I suppose someone might say to me, Matt, how do you know Paul himself is thinking along the lines of this story, this Genesis 11, 12 narrative? Well, that's a good question. And um, I would answer this uh, briefly by pointing out a few things. First, we all think in terms of a story, Paul included. Nobody wants to make, nobody who wants to make sense of, like, of data passes on information in that data at random in piecemeal. Nobody does that. Everything we say, for example, has a context in which we speak. Communication involves not just words, but also a living context in which those words can come alive, in which those words can make sense. And this is what one might call a story. Now, it doesn't mean that the stories in which we speak are correct. Perhaps we get our context or our narratives wrong. That happens all the time, in fact. And so we should always be, you know, willing and ready to critique our traditions, the stories we've been told, the narratives we've been given and passing on, right? We should be open to critique. But make no mistake about it, we always have a tradition in which we live and through which we communicate. So conceptually, there's nothing illogical about me as a biblical scholar seeking to situate Paul's words in Romans within a particular story. That story, which makes the best sense to me, is the Genesis 11-12 story, the Genesis 11-12 narrative that I've mentioned before. Let me just say here a little footnote um, that if you do want to go deeper into this storied approach to the New Testament, 
Again, check out N.T. Wright's The New Testament and the People of God, published in 1992 by Fortress Press. Highly recommend. Go check it out. I've mentioned, you know, again, <laughs> I've mentioned Wright a million times, and, and, and for good reason. I mean, it's, it's a great in-depth introduction, this book, The New Testament and the People of God. It's a great in-depth introduction into the sort of hermeneutics that I find persuasive, okay? I don't agree with Wright on everything, though I think he's a fantastic scholar. And on this stuff, I think he's largely correct. So go check that out. Okay, so again, first thing I'd say is that, you know, broadly speaking, conceptually speaking, you know, we all operate within stories, Paul included. Paul is not just talking at random. Like he's operating within a story and our job as exegetes is to identify that story so that we can make sense of all the bits of data. Okay. So conceptually, that's just the way communication works. That's the way hermeneutics works. Okay. Um, there's always a narrative. Okay. Okay. So second thing with respect to Paul specifically, I, I simply think he's a storied reader. Okay. I mean, for example, I, I, let me, let me just identify what I mean by that. I think he's always cognizant of a story. Okay. He's always got his mind on the bigger picture. Okay, let me, let me see if I can give an example of this. When I read 1 Corinthians 10, we talked about 1 Corinthians 10 before when we were talking a little bit about eschatology. Um, let's, let's go there. Okay, let's just jump into that. Um, when you read 1 Corinthians 10, you'll notice how Paul situates the story of Israel's exodus, like the, 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 the bits of data that speak about Israel's exodus. You'll notice how that's situated within a larger narrative. In fact, let me just read through the relevant portions here, okay? And as I do, notice that Paul does not just repeat the data, the words from Israel's Exodus story, okay? I mean, he situates all that stuff within a certain context, specifically within the story, the context, the, the tradition of Jesus, the, the Messiah. So let me read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. Reading once again from the New Revised Standard Version. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by servants. And do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example, and they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Okay. This passage is worth its own episode. I get that. But today, I don't want to get into all the details. It's sufficient for our purposes today to simply notice how Paul situates the story of Israel's exodus into a larger narrative. He doesn't just merely repeat the facts about the original exodus story. The context from which he reads is Christological. That's his horizon of understanding. The story for Paul is an exodus story that is retold through a Christological lens and moreover, that old exodus um, has particular relevance and application for the Jesus people at Corinth, okay? So did you notice the references to Christ? Like he's, he's got Christ back at the exodus, which is so fascinating. But the point is, is that he's telling, he's using exodus data 
and, and, and bits of that story, he's situating that within his larger Christological perspective. And that's my point, is simply to say that Paul is a storied reader. Okay, you can disagree with Paul about the story that he tells, but you can't disagree with Paul that he tells a story. Okay, I think that's one way to put it. Okay, third thing. I think there are clues throughout Romans that suggest Paul is operating from the Genesis 11-12 narrative. For example, we saw in Romans chapters 1-3 through how Paul is at pains to show that the sinfulness is endemic to all of humanity. I mean, he's quick to highlight Gentile sin, for example. He also highlights and affirms the divine calling that was placed upon Israel to be a light to the nations. Go back and read Romans 2. Moreover, in Romans 3, Paul spoke about how the nation of Israel as a whole was unfaithful to carry forth the oracles of God. And he also mentions how this unfaithfulness did not nullify the faithfulness of God to finish the job. And then, of course, in Romans 4, Paul shows that in Christ, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. And in fact, that covenant is fulfilled with, without respect to law-keeping or ethnic privilege. We saw that in Romans 9. Okay, it's, it's, it's fulfilled uh, outside of ethnic privilege, outside of law-keeping, okay? And of course, we could go on and on, but that would <laughs> require repeating all of the previous episodes. At any rate, if all that exegesis is correct, then it sure fits well within that Genesis 11-12 narrative. I mean, all those bits and data from Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and Romans 9, all the exegesis, all of that that we've discovered, it sure fits well within that Genesis 11-12 narrative. And I think that narrative um, it gives, us, gives us meaning, okay? It gives, it gives those words of Romans meaning. And it sure seems that Paul is following a certain storied approach, a narrative, right? Look, I'm always open to reconfiguration and thinking afresh about how to situate Paul. But to me, at least at this moment in my own hermeneutical journey, I think something like this is exactly what is happening all throughout Romans. Well, friends, that is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Um, it looks like we have about one to two more episodes left in our series through Romans, and then we'll move on to another series, another topic. Um, I'm looking forward to that, but as I said, I'm, I'm pretty sad that we're ending this series. We're coming to the end. Um, nonetheless, I do hope that our discussions so far have been helpful and enlightening. I hope they've been encouraging to you. It's always fun to wade through the biblical text, picking up this rock here and taking a peek behind that ridge over there. It's a fun journey. Thanks so much for walking with me through the text. Well, that's it for today. Blessings to you and yours this week. That's the end of today's episode. And thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.